Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Weekend is taking a little break. So for the next two weeks, we're picking some of our favourite pieces from the last few months, just in case you missed them. Coming up... Michelle Obama reads an exclusive extract from her book, The Light We Carry, Overcoming in Uncertain Times. Are you a steepinkler or a zitzpinkler? Sam Wollaston extols the virtues of sitting down to pee. And three decades on, the only survivor of a plane crash reflects on how the trauma changed her. Now, when Barack Obama was elected president in 2009, the plan was for Michelle's 71-year-old mother, Marianne Robinson, to move in too, just until Sasha and Malia were settled. She ended up staying for eight years. She came to be fondly known as Mrs. R by White House staff and was revered for her low-key approach. She also ended up becoming the family's secret weapon when it came to the inevitable anxiety around parenting. Here, the former first lady shares five of her mother's more tried-and-true maxims around raising decent children without drama and fuss. But with the following disclaimer from Mrs R herself, just make sure they know I'm not in the business of telling anybody how to live. Number one, teach your kids to wake themselves up. When I was five years old and starting kindergarten, my parents gifted me with a small electric alarm clock. It had a square face with little green glow-in-the-dark hands that pointed toward the hour and the minute. My mom showed me how to set my wake-up time and how to turn the alarm off when it buzzed. She then helped me work backward through all the things I'd need to do in the morning, eat my breakfast, brush my hair and teeth, pick out my clothes, get my shoes tied, and so on in order to calculate how many minutes it would take to get myself up and out the door to school. She was there to provide instruction, 
she'd furnish me with the tool, but the challenge of using it effectively became mine to figure out. And I freaking loved that alarm clock. I loved what it gave me, which was power and agency over my own little life. My mom, I realize now, had passed on this particular tool at a deliberately chosen window early enough in my development before I was old enough to be cynical about having to get up for school in the morning, before she'd ever have to start shaking me awake herself. It spared her the hassle in some ways, but the real gift was to me. I could wake myself up. If I ever did sleep through my alarm or otherwise get lazy and drag my feet about going to school, my mother was not interested in doing any nagging or cajoling. She remained hands-off, making clear that my life was largely my own. Listen, I got my education, she'd say. I've already been to school. This isn't about me. Number two, it isn't about you. Good parents are always working to put themselves out of business. The alarm clock approach was representative of an even more deliberate undertaking on my parents' part, and that was to help us kids learn to get on our own feet and stay on our feet, not just physically, but emotionally. From the day she birthed each of her children, my mother was striving toward a singular goal— and that was to render herself more or less obsolete in our lives. My mom made no bones about the fact that, especially when it came to -to day-to-day practical tasks, her plan was to become as unnecessary in our lives as possible, as quickly as possible. The sooner that time arrived, the more successful she'd deem herself to be as a parent. I'm not raising babies, she used to say. I'm raising adults. It may sound scandalous to say, especially in an era when helicopter parenting has become de rigueur, but I'm pretty sure that most of my mom's decision-making was guided by one basic question. What's the minimum I can do for them right now? This was not a cavalier or self-serving question, but rather a deeply thoughtful one. In our home... Self-sufficiency mattered above all else. My mom believed that her hands only got in the way of our hands. If there was something new we needed to learn, she'd show us a way to do it and then quickly step aside. This meant that with the aid of a step stool, Craig and I learned how to wash and dry the dishes long before we were tall enough to reach the sink. We were required to make our beds and do our own laundry as a matter of habit. We did a fair amount of this stuff imperfectly, but the point was, we were doing it. My mother wasn't stepping in. She didn't correct our errors or squelch our way of doing things, even if our way was slightly different from hers. This, I believe, was my first taste of power. I liked being trusted to get something done. It's easy for kids to make mistakes when they're little, my mom told me recently when I asked her about this. Let them make them, and then you can't make too big a deal out of it either, because if you do, they'll stop trying. 
She sat by and allowed us to struggle and make mistakes with our chores, our homework, and our relationships with various teachers, coaches, and friends. None of it was tied to her own self-worth or ego or done for bragging rights. It was not about her at all, she would say. She was busy trying to wash her hands of us, after all. This meant that her mood didn't rise or fall on our victories. Her happiness wasn't dictated by whether we came home with A's on our report cards, whether Craig scored a lot of points at his basketball game, or I got elected to student council. When good things happened, she was happy for us. When bad things happened, she helped us process it before returning to her own chores and challenges. The important thing was that she loved us regardless of whether we succeeded or failed. She lit up with gladness anytime we walked through the door. On days when I came home stewing about something a teacher had done, and I'll admit this happened with some regularity, my mom would stand in the kitchen and listen to whatever tirade I had to unleash about the unfairness of some teacher's remark or the stupidity of an assignment or how Mrs. So-and-so clearly didn't know what she was doing. And when I was finished... When the steam of anger had dissipated to the point that I could think clearly, she'd ask a simple question, one that was fully sincere and also at the same time just a tiny bit leading. Do you need me to go in there for you? There were a couple of instances over the years when I did genuinely need my mom's help, and I got it. But 99% of the time, I did not need her to go in on my behalf. Just by asking that question and by giving me a chance to respond, she was subtly pushing me to continue reasoning out the situation in my head. How bad was it actually? What were the solutions? What could I do? This is how, in the end, I usually knew I could trust my own answer, which was... I think I can handle it. My mother helped me to learn how to puzzle out my own feelings and strategies for dealing with them, in part by just giving them room and taking care not to smother them with her own feelings or opinions. If I got overly sulky about something, she told me to go do one of my chores, not as punishment exactly, but rather as a means of right-sizing the problem. Get up and clean that bathroom, she'd say. It'll put your mind on things other than yourself. Inside our small home, she created a kind of emotional sandbox where Craig and I could safely rehearse our feelings and sort through our responses to whatever was going on in our young lives. Once when I was in high school and unhappy about having to deal with a math teacher who struck me as arrogant, my mom heard my complaint, nodded understandingly, and then shrugged. You don't have to like your teacher, and she doesn't have to like you, she said. But she's got math in her head that you need in yours, so maybe you should just go to school and get the math. She looked at me then and smiled as if this should be the simplest thing in the world to grasp. You can come home to be liked, she said. We will always like you here. Three, know what's truly precious. 
My mom remembers that the house she grew up in on the south side had a big coffee table at the center of the living room made of smooth, delicate glass. It was breakable, and so everyone in the family was forced to navigate around it, almost on tiptoe. She was a studious observer of her own family, my mother. She sat squarely in the middle of seven children, which gave her a lot to watch. She had three older siblings and three younger ones, plus two parents who appeared to be polar opposites and didn't much get along. She saw how her father, my grandfather Southside, tended to baby his kids. He drove them around in his car so that they wouldn't need to take the bus, afraid of what lay beyond his control. He woke them up in the morning so they wouldn't need to set an alarm. He seemed to enjoy their dependence on him. My grandmother Rebecca, my mom's mom, meanwhile, was stiff and proper, patently unhappy and possibly, my mother believes now, clinically depressed. When she was young, she dreamed of being a nurse, but apparently her mother, a washerwoman who'd raised seven kids, had told her that going to nursing school cost a lot of money and black nurses rarely got good jobs. So Rebecca married my grandfather and had seven children instead, never seeming terribly content with what her life had yielded. The governing edict in Grandmother Rebecca's house was that children should be seen and not heard. At the dinner table, my mom and her siblings were instructed to stay silent, to listen mutely and respectfully to the adult conversation around them. When her mother's friends came to visit their home, my mom and her siblings were required to join the adults in the living room. All of them, from toddlers to teens, were expected to sit politely at the edges, permitted to say nothing more than hello. My mother describes long evenings spent in that room with her mouth clamped shut in agony, hearing plenty of adults speak she wanted to engage with, plenty of ideas she wanted to quibble with or at least better understand. It must have been during these hours that my mother arrived at the idea, even unconsciously, that her own kids someday would be not just allowed but encouraged to speak. No earnest question would ever be disallowed. Laughter and tears were permitted. Nobody would need to tiptoe. One night when someone new stopped in for a visit, my mom remembers the woman surveying all the young faces and restless bodies packed into the living room and finally posing a logical question. How possibly could you have a glass table like this and all of these kids? She doesn't recall how my grandmother responded, but my mom knew what the real answer was. Her own mother had missed a fundamental lesson about what was precious and what was not. What was the point of seeing children without hearing them? One evening, finally, when my mother was about 12, some grown-up friends came over to their house to visit, and for some foolish reason, one of them happened to sit down on the table. To my grandmother's horror, and as her children watched silently, it shattered into pieces on the floor. For mom, it was a bit of cosmic justice. 
even today, this story still cracks her up. Four, parent the child you've got. The apartment my parents raised us in had nothing resembling a glass table. We had very little in our lives that was delicate or breakable at all. It's true that we couldn't afford anything too fancy, but it's also true that in the wake of her own upbringing, my mother had no interest in owning showpieces of any sort. At home, Craig and I were permitted to be ourselves. My brother and I were respectful of our elders and abided by some general rules. But we also spoke our minds at the dinner table, threw balls in the house, cranked music on the stereo, and horsed around on the couch. When something did break, a water glass or a coffee mug or every once in a while a window, it was not a big deal. I tried to carry the same approach into my parenting of Sasha and Malia. I wanted them to feel both seen and heard to always voice their thoughts, and to never feel like they had to tiptoe in their own home. Barack and I established basic rules and governing principles for our household. Like my mom, I had our kids making their beds as soon as they were old enough to sleep in beds. Like his mom, Barack was all about getting the girls interested early in the pleasure provided by books. What we learned quickly, however, was that raising little kids followed the same basic trajectory we'd experienced with both pregnancy and childbirth. You can spend a lot of time dreaming, preparing, and planning for family life to go perfectly, but in the end, you're pretty much just left to deal with whatever happens. You can establish systems and routines anoint your various sleep-feeding and disciplinary gurus from the staggering variety that exist. You can write your family bylaws and declare your religion and your philosophy out loud. But at some point, sooner rather than later, you will almost surely be brought to your knees, realizing that despite your best and most earnest efforts— you were only marginally and sometimes very marginally in control. Here's a story I'm not necessarily proud of. It happened one evening when we still lived in Chicago, when Malia was about seven years old and Sasha was just four. I was home after a long day of work. As was often the case in those days, Barack was across the country in Washington, D.C. in the middle of a Senate session that I was probably feeling resentful of. I had served the kids dinner, asked how their days had gone, supervised bath time, and was now cleaning up the last of the dishes, sagging a little on my feet, desperate to be off duty and find even just a half hour to sit quietly by myself. The girls were supposed to be brushing their teeth for bed, but I could hear them running up and down the stairs to our third-floor playroom, giggling wildly as they went. Hey, Malia, Sasha, it's time to wind down, I called from the foot of the stairs. There was a brief pause, three whole seconds maybe, and then more thundering footsteps, another shriek of laughter. It's time to settle down, I yelled again. Yet it was clear I was shouting into the void, fully disregarded by my own kids. 
I could feel the heat starting to rise in my cheeks, my patience disintegrating, my steam building up, my stack preparing to blow. All I wanted in the whole wide world was for those children to go to bed. Since the time I was a kid myself, my mom had always advised me to try to count to ten in moments like these, to pause just long enough that you might grab on to some reason to respond rather than react. I think I got as far as counting to eight before I couldn't stand it another second. I was angry. I ran up the stairs and shouted for the girls to come down from the playroom and join me on the landing. I then took a breath and counted the last two seconds, trying to quell my rage. When the girls appeared, the two of them in their pajamas, flushed and a little sweaty from the fun they'd been having, I told them, I quit. I was resigning from the job of being their mother. I summoned what little calm I could find in myself and said, Look, you don't listen to me. You seem to think you don't need a mother. You seem perfectly happy to be in charge of yourself, so go right ahead. You can feed and dress yourselves from now on, and you can get yourselves to bed. I am handing you your own little lives, and you can manage them yourselves. I don't care. I threw my hands in the air, showing them how helpless and hurt I felt. I am done, I said. It was in this moment that I got one of my life's clearest looks at who I was dealing with. Malia's eyes grew wide. Her lower lip started to tremble. Oh, Mommy, she said, I don't want that to happen. And she promptly hustled off to the bathroom to brush her teeth. Something in me relaxed. Wow, I thought, that sure worked fast. Four-year-old Sasha, meanwhile stood clutching the little blue blankie she liked to carry around, taking a second to process the news of my resignation before landing on her own emotional response, which was pure and unfettered relief. No sooner had her sister shuffled obediently off, Sasha turned without a word and scampered back upstairs to the playroom as if to say, finally, this lady is out of my business. Within seconds, I heard her flip on the TV. In a moment of deep fatigue and frustration, I'd handed that child the keys to her own life, and it turned out that she was plenty happy to take them, long before she was actually ready to. Much as I'd like my mom's idea about eventually becoming obsolete in my kids' lives. It was far too early to quit. I promptly called Sasha back down from the playroom, marched her through the toothbrushing, and put her to bed. This one episode provided me with an important lesson about how to proceed with my children. I had one who wanted more guardrails from her parents and one who wanted fewer one who would respond first to my emotions and another who would take my words at face value. Each kid had her own temperament, her own sensitivities, her own needs, strengths, and ways of interpreting the world around her. Barack and I would see these same dynamics manifest over and over again in our children as they grew. 
On the ski slopes, Malia would make measured, precise turns, while Sasha preferred to bomb straight downhill. If you ask how Sasha's day at school had been, she'd answer with five words before bouncing off to her bedroom, whereas Malia would offer a detailed breakdown of every hour she'd spent away. Malia often sought our advice. Like her dad, she liked to make decisions with input, whereas Sasha thrived just as I once had as a kid when we trusted her to do her own thing. Neither was right or wrong, good or bad. They were and are simply different. In the end, the child you have will grow into the person they're meant to be. They will learn life their own way. You will control some, but definitely not all of how it goes for them. You can't remove unhappiness from their lives. You won't remove struggle. What you can give your kids is the opportunity to be heard and seen, the practice they need to make rational decisions based on meaningful values, and the consistency of your gladness that they are there. Five, come home. We will always like you here. My mother said this to me and Craig not just once, but often. It's the one message that stood out above all else. You came home to be liked. Home was where you would always find gladness. I recognize that for many folks, home can be a more complicated, less comfortable idea. It may represent a place or set of people or type of emotional experience that you are trying to move past. Home could well be a painful spot to which you never want to return. And that is okay. There's power in knowing where you don't want to go. You may need to courageously remake your idea of home, fostering the parts of your flame that may have gone unrecognized when you yourself were a child. You may need to cultivate a chosen family rather than a biological one, protecting the boundaries that keep you safe. My mom moved, yes, kicking and screaming, to Washington with us, in part to help us with our kids, but also in part because I needed her gladness. I am nothing but a grown-up child myself, someone who at the end of a long day comes through the door feeling worn out and a little needy, looking for solace and acceptance and maybe a snack. In her wise and plain-spoken way, my mother built us all up. She lit up for us every day so that we could in turn light up for others. She helped make the White House feel less like a museum and more like a home. During those eight years, Barack and I tried to throw open the doors of that home to more people of more races and backgrounds, and particularly to more children, inviting them in to touch the furniture and explore what was there. We wanted it to feel like a palace of gladness, 
telegraphing one simple, powerful message. We will always like you here. Mom will take no credit for any of it, of course. She'll be the first to tell you still that she's nothing special, and it's never been about her anyway. Late in 2016, about a month before a new president was sworn in, my mother happily packed her bags. There was little fanfare, and at her insistence, no farewell party either. She just moved out of the White House and went back to Chicago, returning to her place on Euclid Avenue, to her old bed and old belongings, pleased that she'd gotten the job done. That was an excerpt from the audiobook of The Light We Carry, Overcoming in Uncertain Times, written and read by Michelle Obama and produced and published by Penguin Random House Audio. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, it could be good for your health and help protect the family toothbrushes. More and more men, or indeed anyone with a penis, are now taking the weight off their feet in the bathroom and choosing to sit to pee. And Sam Wollaston is proud to say he's one of them. Read by Jonathan Keeble. In German, there's a word for one. Of course there is. In German, there's a word for everything. But this is an especially excellent word. Zitzpinkler. You can probably guess what it means, even if you don't speak German. A Zitzpinkler is a man who sits to pee. We have German friends, Flora, Till, their two boys. Flora confirms that the males in the house are encouraged to sit at home, as is common throughout the country. Some German bathrooms have amusing signs reminding men to sit. There's even a device called a WC Geist, toilet ghost, that lives under the seat, and when the seat is lifted, orders you to sit down. You can get a WC Geist with the voice of Angela Merkel. Germany is a brilliant country. Wait, though, because Flora says Zitzpinkler is used in a negative way to imply unmasculine behaviour. Something like wuss in English. 
In 2015, a court in Dusseldorf ruled in favour of a man's right to urinate while standing when his landlord sought financial compensation for urine damage to the marble bathroom floor. Stand up for your rights! Literally. Not all German men are happy to sit. Not all British ones, either. There is no reliable data. Come on, you gov, get on it. A straw poll of my male friends, mostly in their fifties, reveals the majority, about 70%, to be standers. Their reasons? They've always stood. Men stand, women sit. Why would they? No, of course they don't pee on the floor. We'll come back to that. In short, they're lying. I may need to change my friends. My editor, Chris, is half my age. This article stems from a conversation he had with his friends in the pub. Then he asked Twitter and got about 400 responses, with just over half saying they are sitters. Chris has better followers than I have friends, though he is a stander. Hmm, I may need to change my editor. There is a poll from 2020 showing that 70% of men in Japan sit. Five years previously, the figure was 51%. It seems the world, Japan at least, is changing. To clarify, we are talking about inside the home. Out and about, where there are urinals and queues, it's a whole different world and a whole different article. I should probably also say that though I've been talking about men, it applies to anyone with a penis. Time to get personal. I am, I confess, a zitzpinkler. No, not confess. I am proud to zitzpinkle. It wasn't a sudden epiphany, a urethra moment, if you like, but things change as you age. Maybe your aim isn't what it once was. Flow rates decrease, bladders take longer to empty, you need more time, sitting is more comfortable, and you can check Twitter while you're at it. Remember what happened once when you did that standing? For some men, it can also be healthier. In 2014, researchers from the Department of Urology at Leiden University Medical Centre investigated how body position during urination affects voiding time, maximum flow rate and post-void residual volume. They concluded that sitting has a more favourable urodynamic profile, allowing the bladder to empty faster and more completely. For men with lower urinary tract symptoms, LUTs, for example, caused by an enlarged prostate, the sitting voiding position is preferable to the standing. We don't have LUTs, say my unreconstructed friends. Our prostates are perfect. Well, I think mine is okay too. Are we sure, though? We should get them checked. There are other reasons to sit. Going back to that poor Dusseldorf landlord, actually no need. It's hard to feel sorry for a Dusseldorf landlord with a marble floor, and I can just look at my own bathroom floor. I have two sons who have been reluctant to adopt the Zitzpinkler approach, and the floor, not marble admittedly, but fake wood laminate, is often disgusting. A wash. They piss all over it. Boys will be boys. We're grown men, say my friends. We may be getting on a bit, but our aim is still true. We're Robin Hood, snipers of the bathroom, the jackal. Well, first of all, I don't believe you. And second of all, even if you hit the bullseye every time, 
that's not good enough. Once again we turn to science, this time to an American professor of mechanical engineering, Tad Truscott. A while back, using a urination simulator and high-speed cameras, he and a colleague did an investigation into splashback caused by urination, which he presented at the 66th annual meeting of the American Physical Society's Division of Fluid Dynamics in 2013. Truscott now lives in Saudi Arabia and works at the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, but I catch up with him by phone in a Japanese ski resort, where, he admits, he has been investigating the fluid dynamics of a few sakes after a tough day on the slopes. Still, he manages to explain what happens when urine leaves the penile urethra. A stream comes out, but after between three and six inches it starts to break up into droplets, and that's where most of the problem comes from. The droplets start to impinge on each other. Then you get what we call satellite droplets, and they splash off at very large angles, and this is what causes it to splash onto your toothbrush. Yep, he said toothbrush. And maybe not just your toothbrush. It will depend on how big your bathroom is. If your toothbrush is three or four metres away, you're probably fine. If it's just one or two metres, that's not good. That's just from the falling stream. There's also splashback from the wee hitting the surface of the water. Water tends to have a large splash when droplets hit it from that height. That means a lot of splash can come out of the toilet. I was actually telling a friend tonight that when you pee into a toilet like that, you tend to pee on your toothbrush. Interesting topic for Apri ski chit-chat. But this splash is ickier still, and possibly dangerous. Pee in general is very sterile. It's not really a big deal if it lands on your toothbrush and you brush your teeth then, but droplets are quite capable of harbouring bacteria. And in the toilet, this is a problem if you've just used the restroom for something else. There can be faeces in there. Urea is a wonderful harbinger of E. coli growth. So later in the day, it might not be safe to use your toothbrush. Stop saying toothbrush! Anyway, surely that's enough to convert any remaining sceptics. For any splashback deniers or cavemen, I've got great role models too. Larry David, for starters. It's more comfortable when you get up in the middle of the night. You don't have to turn the light on or wake up, and you get to read, he says, in episode four of season four of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Lionel Messi, probably the greatest footballer of all time, admitted to sitting to pee on a Uruguayan TV show called Por la Camiseta for the T-shirt, Messy by name, not so in the bathroom. Still not macho enough for you? Well, guess who he was talking to? Also a confirmed Zitzpinkler. There is no Spanish word, we'll have to stick to German. Only Luis Suarez. Not only a brilliant football player, but also a cannibal. Speaking of cannibals and cavemen, I'm wondering what our ancestors and nearest relatives did and do. Ben Garrod, a professor of evolutionary biology at the University of East Anglia and a primate expert, tells me. Gorillas and chimps just pee where they are. They might be walking through the forest and have a bit of a pee. They might be sitting in a tree eating figs and they'll just pee beneath them. And woe betide anyone beneath. I've been on the receiving end of that. We're the only primate that is bipedal. So we're in a bit of a brave new world when it comes to peeing. 
Great apes don't seem to mark territory. We are not olfactory-based, like dogs or cats, which scent mark. That's a sort of urban myth, that men pee standing up so they can pee higher, and it's all a bit of an evolutionary pissing contest, says Garrod. Sounds nice, sounds plausible, but there's no evidence for it whatsoever. It's thought that one of the reasons for humans becoming upright was to see further across the savannah. I wonder if standing to pee could be useful in spotting predators, and if squatting might make us more vulnerable. I guess if I stand up while I pee, I've got more of a chance of spotting a saber-toothed cat running towards me, or someone from a different community who might wish me harm, Garrett concedes. Again, sounds nice, but no evidence. It might be a nice addendum to my evolutionary journey, but it hasn't driven my evolution as a species. From an evolutionary point of view, then, it doesn't really matter how we pee. Garrod has worked with many tribes and communities around the world. Uh, most of us, I don't usually make a conscious effort to watch other people pee, but uh, working in forests with other blokes, you often see people having a quick wee. Usually it's standing up. As far as I know, there aren't any massive cultural differences. He's talking about in the forest, away from rules and etiquette and porcelain. That's the baseline. Of course, I stand up in the forest, too. And if there's a cliff, I'll piss over that while pummeling my chest. What does Prof Garrod do at home in Norwich, though? I am a stander, he says, almost apologetically. Though I am also a runner. Occasionally, with very tired legs, I will indulge in a sit. Too bad. I was going to ask him to be my friend, to replace some of the recently dumped... Back to Tad Truscott. No toothbrush talk, promise. Surely he sits. I do, unless it's a particularly gross bathroom, then I'm not going to sit on the toilet. He has two boys and two girls. The whole house sits down to pee. He even has advice on how men should do it. You can sort of aim for the side. If you don't hear much, it's probably a stream. If it's a little noisier, it's probably droplets, and that's when things get worse. But remember, by sitting, you're protecting the whole space with your bottom. Happy days. Though doesn't that mean droplets on your bum? It's good to bathe every day, he adds helpfully. Thanks, Tad. We can be friends. He is also currently skiing in Japan, remember. They have these wonderful toilets with all the sprays and things for your rear end. I think men probably sit here because it's comfortable. Right now it's cold. You come in and the seat's heated. OK, I'm going to sit down. Sounds lovely. And I'm thinking it may be the way to solve my own bathroom horror show. Carrot, not stick. A lovely heated seat on a cold day. That's got to be a better way than being shouted at by the ghost of Angela Merkel. That was The Splashback Scandal. Should All Men Sit Down to Urinate? by Sam Wollaston. Read by Jonathan Keeble. Finally, Annette Herfkins was on holiday with her fiancé when their plane went down, killing everyone but her. She tells Paula Kokosa how the experience has shaped her life in the three decades since. Read by Bryony Rawl. Annette Herfkins, 
and her fiancé, Willem van der Pas, had been together for 13 years when he booked them onto a flight from Ho Chi Minh City to the Vietnamese coast. After six months of working in different countries, it was meant to be a romantic break. Van der Pas was a banker, Hufkins a trader. The plane was tiny, just 25 passengers and six crew. Being claustrophobic, Hufkins initially refused to board. To placate her, Van der Pas, Pasha, as he was to her, fibbed that it was only a 20-minute flight. But 40 minutes had gone by when the plane dropped sharply. Van der Pas looked at her. This I don't like, he said nervously. The plane dropped again. He grabbed her hand and everything went black. When Herfkins came to, the sounds of the Vietnamese jungle were coming through a jagged hole in the fuselage. The plane had crashed into a mountain ridge. A stranger lay dead upon her. Pasha, a little way off, lay back in his seat, also dead, a smile upon his lips. That's where you have fight or flight, says Herfkins. I definitely chose flight. The next thing she knew, she was outside in the jungle. She still doesn't know exactly how she escaped the plane, remembering the experience mostly in pictures, an instinctive sensory edit. She has worked hard to forget the smells. She sounds matter-of-fact, but she has had time to become analytical about her behaviour. The crash happened 30 years ago, in November 1992. That's probably self-protection, she says now. She is speaking on a video call from her holiday home in the Netherlands. She is Dutch, but usually lives in New York. It must have been excruciating pain to get out of there. First there was the emotional pain of seeing Pasha dead, then the physical pain. Twelve broken bones in her hip and knee alone. Her jaw was hanging. One lung had collapsed. So I must have crawled out of the plane and lifted myself down. And then I must have crawled another thirty yards, away from the wreckage. The most vivid image from the hours that followed the crash, and from the subsequent eight days Herfkin spent in the jungle, with the moans and cries of her fellow survivors slowly silencing, was of being surrounded by leaves, green and golden, sequined with dew, sunlit through her eyelashes. Time and again, Herfkins turned her focus on them, their light, their colours, movements, away from the man beside her, now dead, away from the white worm crawling out of his eyeball and the leeches on her own skin. If you accept what's not there, then you see what is there, she says. She calls this idea the elevator pitch for her book, Turbulence, A True Story of Survival, as well as the film or TV series she is writing. A famous actor wanted to make the film before Covid, but the project stalled in the pandemic. I accepted that I was not with my fiancé on the beach. Once I accepted that, I saw what was there, and it was this beautiful jungle, she says. Beautiful? Did she really see it that way? Far from fearing the jungle, Herfkins says that since her escape, she has sorted out in her mind. For three decades, it has been her safe place, somewhere to will herself back to at times of stress and emotional need, or even in transcendent moments of meditation. But how could the very place her life had crumbled around her, her partner dead, along with the future they envisaged together, 
shift from being a place of peril to a haven. For Hufkins, the transformation began in the hours immediately after the crash. While she lay injured and thirsty, waiting to be rescued, she thought of the bond markets. She had been working for Santander in Madrid and had been the only woman on the trading floor. She also thought of her mother back in The Hague. It seems incredible, given that she had no food or water, but while she waited for the rescue party, who eventually carried her down the mountain on a hammock, what Hufkins did not think was that she was going to die. I stayed in the moment, she says. I trusted that they were going to find me. I did not think, what if a tiger comes? I thought, I'll deal with it when the tiger comes. I did not think, what if I die? I thought, I will see about it when I die. She describes this experience of moment after moment after moment as mindfulness before its time, before we all knew the word for it. In some ways, this mindfulness was foisted upon her by her body. When, after a couple of days, the man who had been beside her died, Herfkins realised she was alone in the jungle. And I had never been so entirely alone. I panicked. Her collapsed lung made it hard to get the air in. She had to breathe intentionally. And by breathing, I got back into the moment, back into the now. Herfkins, who now works as an inspirational speaker, has often thought about what enabled her to survive. Why was she the only one to make it? Did her innate qualities somehow equip her? Over the years, she has come up with lots of explanations. I was the youngest child. I grew up with a lot of love, but I was left alone. I didn't have parents telling me what I should do and feel, so I developed instincts. Hufkins thinks that she probably has attention deficit disorder, and that if she were a child now, they definitely would have diagnosed me. Growing up, she was reckless and forgetful, routinely mislaying her hockey stick. She learned to be inventive and charming, and thinks that if she had had Ritalin as a kid, I would never have developed the qualities I had for surviving the jungle. She has experience in this department, because her son, Max, 23, is autistic. Both of them tried Ritalin, but found it inhibited their sense of humour. Years later, after Herfkins married her colleague, Jaime Looper, moved to New York and had two children, friends of her daughter, Yusha, and their parents quizzed her on her experience in Vietnam. At dinner parties, she was a prized guest. Some, mostly the dads, pressed books about survival into her hands. Reading them, she realised that in the jungle, her behaviour had been textbook. I did all the right things, she says. She knew she needed water, for instance, so she made a plan. That's what they always say, make a plan. I divided it into achievable steps. From where she lay, she could see the aeroplane's broken wing and thought that the insulation material could work like a sponge. She propelled her body along on her elbows, damaging them so badly that they would later need a skin graft, until she could reach the tufty fibres. The pain was so great that she fainted. But by then, she had eight little balls of the stuff. She needed only to wait until it rained, and the little balls would fill up with water. Every two hours, I would take a sip. And then, a pattern she follows to this day, I congratulated myself, she says, and that also makes you survive. When Herfkins came to write her book and pitch her film, 
she realised she didn't only want to write about her own experience in the jungle. She also wanted to write about the people who helped her, the victims of the crash, and about her son. I went to Hollywood and they said, it has to be all about you, she says. It felt counter to the qualities that saved her. I really think that why I survived is because I got over myself, she says. You get over your little self and then you get your instinct to work. Then you get to connect with other people and then you achieve stuff. When her son was diagnosed with autism at two, she found it helpful to apply what she had learned in the jungle to her life in New York. Hefkins felt the news as a cold hand around my heart, having read about some people's experiences of autism. The aggression, that you'll never be able to connect to your child. I went through the steps of mourning, she says, because Maxie was typical. He was typical until 18 months, and then I started losing him. So he could say words, and he was very warm. He was very sweet. And then he was gone. Bit by bit, he unlearned to talk. She felt him slipping away, and a very different child emerged from the one she thought she knew. You have to mourn what's not there, she says, but focus on what is there. With my son, that's what I did. She connected with other parents who had children with autism and began to see the world around her differently. She noticed groups of volunteers gathering at the corner of Central Park to run with people with disabilities. It's this little world, and you pass it, and you don't give it a second thought. And then all of a sudden, you're in this community. With her daughter's friends' families, conversation revolved around Upper East Side schooling and the best universities. Then I was in this other world at the same time. Her circle widened, diversified. There were many black autistic boys in our circle, and it was so important to the mothers to teach them that when the police came, they had to keep their hands out of their pockets. The stakes felt frighteningly high. She took Max on dry runs to the police station, drilled him on how to behave if he was arrested. She began to feel greater compassion for the other parents she met, and more connected. In the months after the crash, Herfkins, who was then 31, bounced back fast. Within three months, she flew back to her office in Madrid. But the legacy of the crash, the losses and traumas, have shaped the decades since. She clutches a water bottle wherever she goes, and still finds the taste of water better than anything else. When she flies, she tries always to sit in the front row, because the sight of another seat back reminds her of the weight of the dead body that landed on top of her. Small moments of trauma, such as a friend ordering Vietnamese food, sometimes ambush her. Herfkins had specialised in developing markets, with a particular talent for the most imaginative debt-cancelling transactions and it's clear that this specialism helped her in what she calls properly taking a loss. She applied this approach in the jungle, to Pasha, and then later in relation to three miscarriages, to Max's diagnosis, and her divorce from Lupa, who died of cancer in 2021 on the anniversary of van der Paz's death. But what does she mean exactly? It's really feeling it, really thoroughly taking it, she says. You learn from taking losses. It's painful, and you do it. In trading, many people hold on to their positions even while the losses increase, she says. Say you buy shares at £10 and their value drops to £6. 
On paper, you don't feel the loss. But if you sell, instead of £10, you only have £6, so it hurts. But then, you can use the money to buy new shares that will rise beyond the initial £10. You see, it takes an effort to actually accept the loss. It's much easier to pretend that it didn't happen. That's very human. It's the same with mourning. You cannot accept it if you don't feel it. Be aware of it, not just step over it. For Herfkins, survival is an ongoing process. These days, as well as writing her script and giving motivational speeches, she is a carer to Max. Mourning Pasha is an everyday thing, stitched into the fabric of daily life. She still uses his method to keep her t-shirts tidy, taking the whole pile out to take one out so they get less messy. Those little things, you know. She has internalised him, her loss of him, and that too is a form of connection. Each year she marks the anniversary of his death, now also the anniversary of her late ex-husband's death, and counts each day for the next eight days, each sip of water too. And then she buys herself a present. I like treating myself, she says. I'm good at that. That was I was the sole survivor of a plane crash. This is what I learned in Eight Days Alone in the Jungle by Paula Kokoza. Read by Bryony Rule. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's Best of articles were read by Jonathan Keeble, Michelle Obama and Bryony Rawl and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter and Jack Claremont. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.